Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, welcome. It's good to see you, whether you're in person or joining us online. Glad to be together. Glad you're here. And I just want to say, just start off by just thanking Pastor Mark Morrison for uh, preaching last week and uh, leading us so well. What a powerful message that led us into communion and deep moments with the Lord last week. So uh, thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for, uh, for speaking last week and, and leading us so well into the presence of the Lord. Well, this week we're jumping back into the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I'm excited about this week. There's uh, some really significant, we're going to kind of take a larger chunk of the book of Nehemiah today. Actually, uh, the last half of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole thing, don't worry. Uh, But we are going to kind of use it all as uh, our focus for this morning. Two weeks ago, we left Nehemiah after he had had this fascinating conversation with the king of Persia. Where after the king saw that Nehemiah uh, was looking sad, he asked what was wrong, and then if he could help. And we remember that was a, that's a seminal moment in the rest of the story. Um, and you'll remember that uh, Nehemiah took that God-given opportunity to ask the king uh, to, one, head back to his homeland to help in the rebuilding project. And then he went for it, if you remember. He started asking the king for everything that he needed Protection on the journey, letters on the way, and permission to, to use the, the, the lumber and wood uh, from, from the king's own forests to help in the work. It was a lot that he asked for. We talked about that it was difficult to wait on God. Nehemiah started out with this discontent in his heart about hearing what was going on in his homeland. We talked about the idea that it's difficult to wait on God and God's timing for things, right? But then when God does move and he gives that opportunity to be able to recognize that and then step into that confidently with what God is doing. Well, today we find that Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 2, we find that Nehemiah has made what would have been a month-long journey from the king's palace all the way to Jerusalem Uh, The commentaries and scholars are kind of all over on this. It's anywhere from two months to four and a half or five months journey from one place to another. It's a long way to go here. And I want to make a couple observations about the situation that Nehemiah walks into once he gets to Jerusalem. And then I want to make a point that I think is helpful for our spiritual journey today. So we're, like I said, we're going to look at a larger chunk of the book of Nehemiah today. I'm going to read the last part of chapter 2 And only a few verses from chapter 3. So we're going to read together in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 9 through 18. It says this. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. After dark, I went out through the uh, valley gate, past the jackal's well, over the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So, though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead. 
inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know that I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, You know very well the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me, and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Whew! This is exciting. It's like, it's like the climax of what we've been waiting for so far. We get this kind of longer journey of Nehemiah's he got this message. He's struggling. He doesn't know what to do. He waits on the Lord. He gets an opportunity from the king. He makes the journey. And now we get to see it start to happen, right? It's kind of all exciting. But uh, this is a pretty incredible passage. And we learned a, a few really important things that uh, as we read the end of chapter 2 that I want to highlight. Uh, while there's some excitement with Nehemiah coming to this point of the story, one of the first things that we're introduced to in these verses uh, is two people who are essentially the main opposition for Nehemiah for the rest of the book, Sanballat and Tobiah. In fact, Sanballat uh, becomes Nehemiah's chief enemy and really represents the ongoing challenge, not only to what Nehemiah wants to do, but for God's plans of restoration for Jerusalem as well. So isn't it fascinating that one of the first things that we get in the midst of the excitement is a picture of opposition <laughs> and struggle. One commentator wrote this, opposition to the building of the walls of, in, in Jerusalem is a major theme in these chapters. No doubt that Sanballat and Tobiah felt that the local balance of power within the province would be tipped against them if Nehemiah strengthened Judah and Jerusalem. Fascinating. And so it's important for us to know that uh, in the book of Nehemiah, it's largely about strength under pressure. <laughs> in fact, often when you hear sermon series about Nehemiah, it's all, the context is typically about leadership. Leadership in difficult times, leadership when, when it's a struggle, leadership and following God when there's suffering involved. Nehemiah is about having the fortitude to follow God no matter what, and especially when things are hard or even when we experience opposition. That was certainly the case for Nehemiah and, and the people here. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are intended to encourage the Jewish community to remain obedient to God in the face of significant hardship. And wow, isn't that the ongoing story of the people of God? We see that over and over and over in Scripture. And wow, isn't that part of our daily struggle as well? What does it mean to follow God when things are hard? What does it mean to follow God when we're suffering? We've all had kind of a collective uh, uh, season of hardship over the last couple of years that I think uh, in the context of the pandemic where we have been asked this question, we've maybe asked ourselves this question, God, how do I best follow you when it seems like everything is falling apart? It's so important for us today. What does faithfulness to God look like when life is hard? When we get bad news like we saw in week one with Nehemiah. Or when we have to wait on God when we're all fired up about something like we saw in week two. 
When you face significant disappointment, crisis, tragedy in your life, how do you think about God? How do you interact with God? How do you understand God's faithfulness to you in those moments? These are important questions. And chapter 3 of Nehemiah, which we'll get to in a minute, I think helps us, gives us an example of one way that we can actually deal with hardship in our life in the context of following God. It's actually incredible. We'll get there in a minute. So Nehemiah arrives and there's this immediate opposition. But the first thing that he does, and I love this, is he wants to get a realistic picture of what they face. Actually, the first thing he does is he, go, he rests for three days. We get that little like one-liner after three days, right? Remember, he's had a month-long month long journey here. And um, this is just kind of a side note. I think it's really important to mention uh, that he does rest for a few days, which is often an overlooked spiritual and physical reality. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap <laughs> and get some perspective. <laughs> Let the Lord work on you a little bit as you rest. So after his rest... He secretly goes out to get the lay of the land. And we read this. We're going to read again, though. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. And I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Uh, We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. And then a few verses later in verse 15, he says, So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley. Instead, inspecting the wall, I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. What's really fascinating here is that there's a little bit of an intrigue that's happening in the, in the kind of the political background of this story here. Part of why Nehemiah secretly went out is that Tobiah, one of the other uh, main rivals here uh, for Nehemiah, had spies in the city. And so Nehemiah was trying to get a realistic look at the state of things and not letting people know what he had hoped to do or what God had planned. So it's kind of fun when you understand all of that. So Pastor Holly and I, I love that, uh, that there's this initial effort here to get a realistic look at the destruction and devastation and the suffering that's happening. Pastor Holly and I took some time to talk about this idea in our discussion podcast this last week, and it was fun and uh, a, a meaningful conversation that Nehemiah shows some courage here because sometimes when we face something hard, we can tend to not want to get a realistic look at things, to ignore some of it. We can sugarcoat the situation sometimes. Sometimes what we need to do like Nehemiah is go out and just get a really good realistic picture of what's happening in our life and in our heart and in our lives. So Nehemiah wasn't in denial about what was going on and he didn't sugarcoat anything for the people. The state of things in Jerusalem was not good. But we see that Nehemiah, even though that's the reality for him and maybe that's the reality for some of us and what we're facing in our life, Nehemiah was not discouraged. Maybe it was worse than he thought. We don't know, but Nehemiah was not discouraged. In uh, verse 16 through 18, we, uh, we find this. The city official didn't know that I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in a state of ruins and its gates have been not just knocked down but destroyed by fire. This, isn't, this is like we can't reuse these stones. <laughs> Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then he told them about the gracious hand of God that had, that had been on me 
uh, and about my conversation with the king. And they replied, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. So here's a key uh, thing from Nehemiah's perspective in the face of difficulty. He got a realistic picture and the reason that he was not discouraged by that is because he continually recognized from the very beginning that God's gracious hand was on him. Praise the Lord! (laughs) Over and over again, all throughout this book, you'll hear Nehemiah talk about the gracious hand of God who is with him even though it's hard. (laughs) Do you have the ability to recognize that in your own life? That the Lord has not left you. He's walking with you and his gracious hand is on you. Even in the midst of this horrible situation. When hope seems fleeting and there's opposition all around. Nehemiah never lost sight of the gracious and awesome powerful hand of God in his circumstances. Praise the Lord. What a great example for us. It's hard to remember sometimes when life is hard, though, isn't it? It's an incredible perspective. The ability to see God, to trust his leading, to see his gracious working when we see nothing but defeat. Thank you, Nehemiah, for this example. How might that perspective encourage you today as you face whatever it is that you're facing in your life? Whatever circumstance that you uh, are stepping into. The great thing about this situation is that this perspective, his understanding that God's gracious hand is on him, helps him take the next step, him and the people. (laughs) Again, in in verse 18, here's what it helps them do. Recognizing that God's gracious hand had been on me, and I told them about the conversation with the king, they all replied, okay, let's do it. (laughs) Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. This brings us to chapter 3 and another main takeaway for this morning. So Nehemiah's made this long journey. It's, it's a, not a good situation. There's opposition. But Nehemiah is not discouraged because he recognizes God's gracious hand in the midst of everything he's experienced so far. He rallies the troop and everyone says, yes, let's do it. And then another way forward for us when life is hard, we find in chapter 3. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to read the entirety of chapter 3 because it's long and a bit daunting. I'm going to read the first four verses here, and I'm going to do my best with some of these names, okay? So please just give me some grace with this. Pastor Holly and I also kind of joked about this in our discussion podcast. I'm really thankful for the projector because I can say, hey, look at that name. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, reads like this. Then Elishib and the high priest and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, and which they dedicated and the Tower of Hanel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakar, son of Emiri. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hanasah. Uh, and laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Miramoth, the son of Uriah, and the grandson of Hakaz, repaired the next section of the wall. Beside him were Meshalim, the son of Berkara, the, the grandson of Meshzabel, and Zadok, the son of Benah. And on and on it goes. This is all of chapter 3. It goes on for the whole thing. Like I said, it's a bit daunting to read, but the point is extremely powerful. 
what we see through the entirety of chapter 3 is that part of God's gracious plan and powerful working in the midst of hardship was to do it with a united community of people following God's direction. Oh, this is incredible. All throughout chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we see incredible unity among God's people as well as an incredible distribution of work. One of the things that God does here at this point through Nehemiah's good leading is call the people together to remind them that in the midst of this hardship and what we have to do, we do it together. We are a community. That is the way forward in hard times, (laughs) which is such a good message for us because we like to isolate. We like to try to do things on our own. Sorry, thanks, I got it. I'm good. When you're really not. (laughs) One commentator wrote this, it takes both the hands of leadership and partnership to accomplish the work of God. We've already talked about the idea of partnering with God when he moves, and this is part of that. We are each part of a body which functions together. Each person in this room is valued and needed. We are not isolated units, but mutually dependent members who are joined together by the power of the Spirit of God to do what he's called us to do. Amen? (laughs) 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we know this passage. You are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to right now, God's presence has worked differently. It used to be in the Old Testament that it was the temple, the representation of God's presence in the middle of the city, God's power there. (laughs) And now through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our faith, we become the living embodiment of God's presence walking around on earth. Together, living stones, putting God on display. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And what a difficult thing to step into, right? (laughs) But so good. We are all part of this house of God being built, ongoing as we serve one another, encourage one another, as we teach one another what it means to follow Jesus. We need one another for everyday life and the work of Jesus. Amen. That's us. We get to do this. We get to see now be the part of the story of, of God's people working together to, to rebuild the wall, metaphorically, here in Snohomish, in these days. I think about uh, all the people who have helped me and cared for me uh, in my life and on my journey with Jesus. I encourage you to think about those, who those people are for you. There's a vast number of people whom God has used to teach me and lead me and guide me. My parents, my siblings, kindergarten and elementary and high school and college teachers, seminary teachers who bravely taught me to follow Jesus. Most of that for me was in public school. (laughs) Friends at every age, books I've read, podcasts, music I've heard, colleagues I've worked with, congregation members, speakers at conferences, preachers, mentors, casual conversations, and on and on and on it goes. What does that look like for you? I'm so grateful to God for each person in my journey and for all the countless gifts that have so graciously enriched my life and my learning and my journey of faith, whether they know it or not. (laughs) We all have that in our lives, and we are all a part of that for someone. 
We do this together, and it's so important we recognize that. That's what we see in chapter 3, that this work is done the way forward in this really difficult situation for God's people, is to do it together. The work is done by people from all different walks of life in, the, in chapter 3. Family members, people of different towns, people who practice different crafts and trades, people with different callings. One guy gets his whole family involved, even his kids, or he's getting his kids, his daughters, it says. <laughs> so many people from so many backgrounds united and enthusiastically working together to see God's plan accomplished on earth. Incredible. We need each other. And we work together as a church family and as a larger Christian family. A Christian family to see God's plan for Snohomish accomplished. We get to be part of that. And through the power of God's spirit, we can do it. (laughs) There is hope. That's the story of the Bible. There is hope. And through God's power and plan, he does things that we can't even imagine. Because Christ, this is, we, even get, we even get some significant moments where I'm thankful for the, for the people who are working together to rebuild the walls here in Jerusalem. We actually benefit from what's happening in this story right now because in this very city that they're rebuilding, Jesus Christ would come into that city. And there he would die as an atonement for our sins. Rise on the third day again. Here in this city, later on, on the day of Pentecost, Peter would begin preaching the gospel and thousands would come to him, eventually making it to us here today. (laughs) So much happened in this place for the working of God's plan, even to this very day. Do you see what can happen when a group of people work together for God? Nehemiah, again, verse 18. And then I told them, of the gracious hand of God that had been on me and about my conversation. And now when we hear this reply, we understand its significance. Recognizing what they can do together through the power of God, even in a difficult situation, they all replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. One commentator wrote this, Central among the thematic elements of Scripture is the notion of community. Many point to the themes of kingdom and covenant as the most pervasive ideas of the Bible, but community may be even more fundamental than these, as both kingdom and covenant are found themselves, found themselves on community. All things were created by a triune, communal God who has cast his image upon us. And community is an integral part to who we are As humans, considering the whole of Scripture, we define Christ-centered community as a group of diverse but equal individuals interdependent on one another and united in love by the pursuit of of a shared purpose to know God and to make Him known. (laughs) Amen? That's that's the statement. That's our, our mission statement here at Crossview is to help people find and follow Jesus. And invite them into a process of doing that. That's what the discipleship pathway is. That we're committing ourselves to become uh, followers of Jesus in the best ways possible. And then invite others on that journey with us. Oh, it's good. And we need each other. Especially when we face hard times. Amen. That's how we've tried to embody that here. We need each other. We are valued and loved and we have gifts to share as we do our best to see faith in the kingdom of God thrive here at Crossview and in our towns. 
One more uh, passage, which is not on the screen, uh, says, so it's from Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 20. We know this one as well. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens all along with God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. In community, we are no longer a mass of helpless individuals, but are transformed into the people of God, filled by his very spirit. In community, our fears, our angers are transformed by God's unconditional love, and we become gentle manifestations of God's boundless compassion, and his grace-filled hand is upon us. Here and now, as we sit in this room, oh, that makes me just want to say thank you, God. Yes, whatever you're calling me to, yes. Whatever you're calling us to, yes. We want to follow you with all our heart, with all our mind, and we want to do it together in a way that's going to put you on display beyond what any one of us can do on our own. Amen? That's what we're doing together here at Crossview. Worship team, would you come on back up? The gracious hand of God is on us. As we take a realistic look at our world and mindful of the state that it's in, it's now our turn to join together in unity, helping each other along the way, encouraging each other, serving each other, teaching each other. We can all do that together to see God's plan accomplished. And so we join in with how they replied to Nehemiah. Yes, and we begin the good work. Amen. Let's pray.